You can open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And that's the text that the Lord has us in this morning as we continue on through this book. And we just work verse by verse, and God decides what we're learning and what we need. And what the main point of each text is, is the main point of each sermon. And so we just resolve to be unoriginal, and we resolve to just hear what God says and repeat what he says. And so I just explain what he says and what he means by what he says and that it impacts our lives because God knows what's best and his spirit uses his word in our lives for us to grow. And so that's what's happening as we look at his word together. And this is a great portion of scripture that is really encouraging us as a body to function like God wants us to. And so let's look at it together. We're gonna read verses 12 through 22. We're gonna only cover verses 14 and 15 again uh, this morning for the second time. We'll finish those verses and then we'll move into the final portion of this section, but we're gonna read all of it, and we've already covered verses 12 through 13, but we still wanna read all of it just to keep it fresh and in our minds and for it to continue to have its effect in us. So let's read 12 through 22. We'll cover verses 14 through 15. We ask you, brothers, Ephesians, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now in this entire section, what we're seeing is the Apostle Paul and his fellow ministers really instructing the church so that it becomes everything that God wants it to be. They're instructing the church here to ensure that it becomes everything that God desires for this church to become. This is a very compact and a very clear and a very uh, pointed list of instructions. It's just a compact list of instructions. It's a list. And it, it appeals to them. Paul is appealing to them, and he is appealing for their continued growth. So it's a list of instructions, encouragements, appeals for this church so they become everything that God wants them to be. That's what's happening in verses 12 through 22. It's pretty simple to see. And this is at the end of the letter, and so Paul is just listing these things off because he cares so much that this church becomes what it should be. And so I've entitled this entire series through this mess, uh, of messages through this section here, Ecclesiastical Exhortations meaning exhortations to the church. And, and that's what this is in this entire section, ecclesiastical exhortations. And so Paul is teaching these people to have proper conduct. 
He's teaching them to have uh, a continued growth. He's commanding them so they will continue to grow. And he's pleading them uh, with them so that they have lasting protection in their lives. He wants the enemy not to have power over these believers. He's urging them so that they please and obey God. And so listen now, as we divide up this section, in verses 14 through 15 specifically, which we're focusing on this morning, he is speaking of how the church must relate to one another, how the church relates to one another, the church's relationship with each other. If you remember back in verses 12 through 13, he addressed them about how the church needs to relate to its leaders. And if you missed either one of those messages, we did those in two parts, I really advise you, please do go back and listen to part 1A and part 1B of this section, how the church is to relate to its leaders. Then secondly, here in verses 12, I'm sorry, 14 and 15, we're gonna see how the church relates to one another. And then as we move on to verses 16 through 22, so the back half of this entire section, he's gonna really give about eight powerful commands for Christian living. And so really he's addressing them then how the church relates to God and how the church relates in their attitude uh, towards the Lord, their relationship to God, holy living. And it really applies individually and corporately as well. They must do these things together as well as individually. So the church's relationship with the leaders, the church's relationship with each other, and the church's relationship with God. I mean, this is pretty clear, but Paul needs to make sure that this church operates rightly not pragmatically, not in their own wisdom, not what they feel, what God says, so that the church becomes everything that it should become. And that's what Paul cares about. That's what Paul cares about. And so if you missed last week, again, please do go back and listen. Uh, Part 2A, right? This is part two, the church's relationship with each other. And we divided it into two messages. Last week was A, this is B. And I, I pray you go back and listen. But Here's what Paul is doing as he turns to this topic now. It's a new topic. He had covered the church's relationship with the leaders, and now he's covering this new topic of the church's relationship with each other. And he does so by, he turns the corner by strongly urging the church. He says, I ask you that you would relate to your leaders like this, and I urge you that you would relate to each other like this. He's clearly turning uh, courses, changing subjects slightly within the bigger picture. But he's commanding the the church on this. And and church, listen, the Bible is clear. The scriptures are completely clear that for the church to function rightly, the members of the church must embrace their responsibility to one another. If the church is to function rightly, it, it must embrace the responsibility they have to one another. I mean, think about Ephesians 4 that I read earlier in the service. We understand that this is how things function. Listen close now. The body is taught by the pastors through the ministry of the word to become stable and mature believers, stable in doctrine, stable in character, full of love and fruit of the spirit, 
And as they're equipped to think and act and counsel and instruct and minister rightly, then they embrace the responsibility to one another and God gives them this responsibility to serve one another. And then the church then, because it's serving one another, becomes exactly what God wants it to be. And if the church is to ever become what God intends for it to be, which is strong and stable and lasting and healthy and effective and holy, then the members of the body must embrace their responsibility to one another. They must not look to the leaders to do all of that. They must not just hope that somebody else does it. If this body will embrace the responsibility to one another, this church will flourish because God set it up that way and he's always right. And so this is what God wants his church to be. You have to think about it. We often think about how, how, uh, you know, how much we need the Lord in terms of our own shortcomings. That is true. But the word of God is to build the church. And so you have to come in here with shortcomings, but you're not to stay that way. You're to grow. And of course, you'll always fall short. But the whole point is you, God wants you to be healthy and strong and mature because, that's, because he loves you and he wants you to be out of sin. And he wants you to be effective for his cause. And so don't get caught in the trap that we're just a bunch of people sitting around talking about how bad we are. That is true. We know that in the gospel. But God wants to make you healthy. And the way in which he's going to make you healthy is through other healthy believers investing in your life. That's what's glorifying to him. That's what's helpful for each other. And that's what's effective for the kingdom. He loves you. And so he wants you to grow. And if you are to grow, you need other believers helping you. And if you are to help other people grow, God's church will become everything it should be. And so in order for this to happen, again, you must see your duty and obligation to one another. This must be less about yourself and more about others. Your life in the church must be less about you as an individual and more as a member of a family. If you're going to grow in this way, you need to see yourself less as an independent unit. And you need to see yourself more as dependent and dependable member of the whole, a part of the whole. You must be less passive. You got to be less afraid to invest and address and confront and help and encourage others. You got to be a member who is willing to endanger your own reputation to say what's right, to help somebody else out of sin and to protect the body. You must be willing to, 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 to suffer in order to help someone be healthy and direct them toward a godly future. You must be willing to be active and instructing and warning and encouraging if you're to be this, you got to be protective of the body, supportive of other individuals, helpful in areas of their lives. You got to be encouraging to, to people. You got to love them and serve them. I mean, this is how you have to live as a member of the body if this church is to become what it's supposed to be. So these commands come to us. They come to you. They come to you. They come to your life. You've, you can't just leave here and go home and operate independently and wonder why the church is not what it's supposed to be. It's because you are not doing what you're supposed to do in the lives of other people. You've got to grow and be mature spiritually so that you can help others.
These are the commands. These are the responsibilities for the believers and the members of his church. God wants his church to be strong and stable and healthy and effective and lasting for his glory, for your sanctification and for the salvation of the lost. And the way it's to be that is by embracing the responsibility to one another. So here this question comes to you. It confronts us. This, this, this text confronts us, just like it confronted the Thessalonians as Paul was writing it. When, when it came to them, they would have to ask themselves, are we doing this? And so it comes to you. Are you fulfilling your responsibility to the body, to the other believers? You say, well, I don't feel connected to somebody else. Call somebody and invite them over to your house to have dinner and ask them how they're doing and then begin to communicate with them regularly and help them grow and establish friendships so that you can help one another be built up in the Lord. And that's just one example. But are you fulfilling this responsibility? Uh, are you putting forth the effort to obey God in this area? That's the question, because this is gonna take some holy sweat. You're not just gonna float out of here and, and just all of a sudden be investing in other people's lives with no effort. You put forth effort in every other area, you gotta put forth effort in this area. And God will use your spirit-empowered efforts to make this church everything he wants it to be. So as we get into this, Paul lays out this very practical list. And it's really so helpful because it just puts people into categories and, and then it puts responses into categories. And I told people last week, you could really just make a list here. If someone's in this category, do this, right? Just make two columns. This category, do this. This category, do this. This category, do this. I mean, he just lays it out here. If you're ever wondering, how do I respond to this person? It's pretty simple. He just makes this clear. He summarizes with one word, category of people, and summarizes with one word, a response to them. And summarizes with one word, a category of people, and summarizes with one word, a response to them. And he does this throughout this whole list. So who's he dealing with here? Well, he's dealing with the unruly, number one, verse 14. How do we deal with those in the church so that the church may become everything that it's to become? How do we get them from being unruly to not unruly? Simply put. Number two, faint-hearted. How do I deal with the faint-hearted people? Verse 14. Number three, how do we deal with the weak? Number four, how do you as a member of the church deal with the stagnant? And number five, how do you deal with the unloving? I mean, it's pretty simple. And so let me say this as we embark on this journey once again and close out this section. You can easily notice here that each group is not where they need to be. Paul is not saying here, how do you help the person who's really strong and healthy spiritually in your church? He's, he's assuming that the spiritually strong and healthy are gonna help these people get out of this place of where they are. And so if you notice here, and I said last week, people facing problems, and that's really true. It's not that we're not um, empathetic to all of our struggles, but God it does not want these people to stay in those places. Don't make the mistake that that's where God is, is just happy because you're open and honest and vulnerable about your struggle and you can sit in it and everybody will accept you and your struggle to stay exactly as you are. That's not how God operates. We accept people as they are, but then we get them from where they are to where they need to be, all right? And so that's what God wants to do in his body. These are people who are not where they need to be. 
In other words, he's giving instructions here about how to deal with those who are not strong and stable in the Lord. How do the strong and stable help the not strong and not stable? And because though we all struggle, listen now, God wants to build his church. And he wants to build his church into Christ's likeness. And you say, well, Christ suffered. Yeah, and he never wavered in his trust in his father. He, he obeyed exactly how he was supposed to obey. There's a difference between suffering at the hand of the Lord and not wavering and one who is in these places, right? The Lord wants you to be healthy so that even in the midst of struggle, you rely solely on the Lord's strength and you never waver in your faith. And you're always even able to help others and grow. So he wants this church to be holy, stable, lasting, strong, bold, trusting, unwavering, joyful, discerning, sanctified, effective people. He wants you to be the strongest that you can possibly be on this side of heaven, in the Lord. And so he wants sin out of your life. He, he wants you to grow and, and be consistent. And so this is what he wants for his church. And so he doesn't want people to accommodate people where they are and leave them as they are. Don't confuse acceptance with compromise. God never compromises his truth, ever. We accept people, but we don't compromise God's truth. We accept them where they are, but they have to get to where God wants them to be. Many people say, well, God, he, Jesus ate with the, the tax collectors and the sinners. Absolutely. Because those tax collectors and sinners that he was sitting with were willing to be changed by him. If those tax collectors and sinners looked at him and said, we're going our own way, he wouldn't be eating with them and drinking with them. That's what the Pharisees' responses were. They didn't see their sin and they didn't know they needed to change. So yes, we eat with the tax collectors and sinners and we help them get to where they need to be in the Lord, right? And so I want you to understand that God needs, he doesn't need anything. He wants these people to move to where they need to be in the Lord, okay? And so, and so this is what Paul is giving here, instructions for the strong believers to help the struggling believers grow into what they need to be. So last week, what we covered, just in terms of, of quick review, so that you know um, kind of how this progresses here. And, and by the way, this responsibility is to everyone. So if you're not in one of these struggling categories, it is your responsibility to help those who are in these struggling categories, okay? And so where, where, where do we look first? Well, first, the unruly, verse 14. We ask you, or, I'm sorry, verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. And so literally, what this means is those who are out of line. That's the word that's used here for the idol. Um, in in uh, the NASB, I think it's, it's unruly. That's a, a more appropriate term. The unruly, they're, they're ungovernable. They won't be ruled. And usually it turns into idleness because when someone is unruly, they never participate in any type of function with the church or they never engage in anything to grow spiritually. So the unruly, 
the ones who are out of line, out of step. It's like a soldier who is not in line or in step with the rest. Everyone's going one direction, they're not, right? They will end up not growing at all. So you understand the, the idleness. And so th- this is the one who is, won't get on board, who's pulling in another direction, and who's consequently idle. And the response that Paul commands for the members of the church, you ready? Is to take it upon yourself as your responsibility to warn them. That's what admonishing means, to warn them. They're, they're pulling in a different direction. They might be even in the church gossiping about the leadership, uh, gossiping about other members, saying, yeah, I know everyone believes this, but I'm wiser than everybody. And so I'm gonna, I'll figure it out. I know that this is not exactly right. And so they're wise in their own eyes. And those people who are pulling in the other direction, who are literally, the word meaning out of line, the rest of the body is to see that and warn them. The word admonish, we've seen this in other places. Sometimes in the scripture, it's, it's translated as instruct. Sometimes it's translated as warn, right? But it's, 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 the, it's the idea of laying on one's mind the word of God. You, you lay the word of God to bear on their mind. Hey, you know this is what the word says. You know this is the consequence of not following the word of God. You call them to repentance. You warn them of the consequence of their actions and you help their mindset to agree with God about the issue at hand. And so you help their actions to change through laying on their mind the word of God. It's never right, listen church, to never to, to not say anything. Uh, I think some people see that in the church. They see the unruly person and they'd say, well, I'm not gonna say anything. I hope it works out for them. Or I hope the leaders figure it out. And then, and then while that's happening, there's cancer that's just spreading. And so it's not loving to that person. It's not loving to the church. It, it doesn't honor God. And this must come from a place of love. You truly want them not to be in that place anymore. You're not just condemning them and saying, hey, you're stuck, you can't move. You are lovingly helping them get to a place and it's coming from a conviction of God's word in your heart. It may even cost you your reputation and your comfort. You know that? Oftentimes we, we sacrifice our reputation to help someone see truly rightly. And oftentimes they're upset with you about it because you told them, right? But oftentimes people are thankful for it because you've helped them grow. But you can't think about what the repercussions are. You must lovingly, right, as Second as Timothy 4 says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with the word of God. Show someone where they're wrong, tell them why it's, it's wrong, and tell them they gotta change and help them get there. So Acts 20, 26, you gotta say like Paul does. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I, I didn't shrink back from telling you what was true and so your blood is on your own head, right? Now you, you don't, um, you're not rubbing that wound in. You just wanna be free in your conscience because you said what was right. So here's the question. Are you taking it upon yourself to instruct and warn the unruly and the idle in this church? Are you taking it upon yourself to instruct 
and warn the unruly and the idle in this church. You will save people from hell. You will save people from destructive ways. And, you, and this church will be full of people who protect God's body instead of a small few who do it. So last week also, we talked about how to respond to the faint-hearted. In, in verse 14, it says, admonish the idol. And it says, encourage the what? The faint-hearted. And what this means is literally the small sold, the small sold. It, it means those who are timid. That's, that's what it's referring to here, timid. The ones who lack courage. The ones who lack a trust in the Lord. The, lack, the ones who lack a, a resolve to follow God in all of his ways because they're afraid of the consequences. Their heart, I mean, the faint-hearted, you can hear it, right? Their heart faints <laughs> at the slightest bit of trouble, the slightest bit of persecution, the slightest bit of, of, of trial or risk or, or someone saying something that might hurt their feelings. The slightest little bit, they faint, their heart faints. They're afraid. If the unruly are on the fringes, close to going their own way, the faint-hearted are the ones who are constantly at the middle. They're kind of just wanting to stay in the middle. And so they don't exercise deep and mature trust in the Lord. These are the ones who are, who are, are consistently maybe discouraged and despondent. And Paul says what the strong believers in the congregation are to do is to encourage them. Encourage them and not just encourage them in the sense that you're saying, you know, hey, you're great. Just stay where you are, but, but be encouraged. He's saying to literally what this means is to come alongside of them, get them going, right? The faint hearted, the ones who are timid, get them going. Tell them what, why, how to believe and trust in the Lord. Uh, tell them how to, to cheer up. Tell them the truth. Move them past their timid state. Get them to a place of consistent courage and strength. Instruct them in the truth. Develop in them boldness and trust. Help them to look to God. Help them to know their worth and salvation. Help them to focus on the task at hand, the task of sanctification and the task of service and the task of evangelism, to be strong and courageous. Help them to trust that he is with them. That's what Jesus said when he left. I'm gonna be with you wherever you go. Help them to understand that he made them exactly how they are, that he chooses them in salvation and he wants to use their lives. And if they will just trust him completely, not micromanage their own situation and their own lives, but just trust him. And God will use them. And you don't wanna make them proud in a fleshly sense, but help them to be free. Help them to be healthy and stable and spiritually productive and strong. And that's when they're gonna help others, help them to take their eyes off themselves. You might have to lift the burden of unbiblical expectations that are on their, on their shoulders. And because they're suffering at the words of someone else who's told them they gotta be something that God doesn't require them to be. They might be faint-hearted in the sense because they don't even know what God expects of their lives. You gotta help them to identify the schemes of the devil. Oftentimes the faint-hearted are believing the lies of, of Satan. They don't even recognize that they're believing those lies. Satan's schemes are, he's wise. He knows how to get somebody into a place of vulnerability, doesn't he? He knows exactly what to say to get you discouraged. 
And so sometimes you don't even recognize it. And those people are very, they, they don't recognize the schemes of the devil. They don't have the armor of God on. And so you might have to help them recognize Satan's schemes in their lives and to help them put on the whole armor of God. You gotta help them be faithful where they are and do what God has gifted and called them to do. So are you strengthening the body by helping the small soul be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might? That's what you gotta do. And, uh, and so this is, this is the second group. Now, the third group here is the weak. Help the weak, right? That's pretty simple. Admonish the idol. I mean, these are straightforward. They don't take a ton of, of discussion here. Admonish the idol, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the who? The weak. Now, who are the weak here? The weak here means those who are helpless in the moral sense. Helpless in the moral sense. Uh, in other words, they're susceptible to sin. These are the ones who are helpless in the moral sense. They're the ones who are susceptible to sin. James 5.14, a very common, uh, commonly known, well-known verse, James 5.14, it translates this same word as sick. Is anyone among you, what? Sick. And so he says, let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will, he will be forgiven. And so in James, it could include those who have health issues, which is how we normally interpret that verse, right? But maybe more likely, James, the verse in, in the book of James is actually referring to those who are fragile and beset by sins. When it says, is anyone among you sick? Go to the elders. Because if you look at this in the context, it says the prayer can save them. Now it could be that it could also heal them. But the prayer of intercession by the strong elders on behalf of the morally weak, calling them to repentance, can heal or save this person. Now, it is true that if we pray for people, God also answers prayers related to health issues if we wanna pray for someone who's actually sick. But it could be referring to here that this person is actually one who is stuck in sin. Because it says here at the end, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. In other words, if the elders, the spiritually strong, pray for the one who is weak, susceptible to sin, and there's a repentance there, then they're gonna be forgiven, they're in Christ. You'd be forgiven seven times 70, an infinite amount. If you're truly in Christ, you're already totally forgiven. But the elders there are praying for this person. Now, it also could be that this person's sickness, health-wise, is also as a result of sin, right? Sin oftentimes leads to what? True sickness in your health, right? as either a penalty by God or just a consequence of your sin. And so... James says here, if he's committed any sins, the prayers of the spiritually strong, here it's the elders, answered by God, saving him from the grip of sin, proven by his repentance, because he's in Christ, he will be forgiven. It could be referring to here that, that this is someone who is susceptible to sin more than it is someone's health issues. Either way, the point is this. This gives us a fuller picture of this word, the weak. This is someone who is susceptible to sin, and who's struggling to obey God and to deny their sin. They're not unruly. 
but they're struggling to follow God in every area of their lives. They're fighting temptation all the time. They're being tossed by error. You gotta understand here, as a church, we will go a long way with a struggler. I mean, we'll go all the way with you. If you're in Christ and you're genuinely and constantly repenting and you mean it sincerely, I mean, we'll go all the way with you. I'll help you all the way into your deathbed, right? It's those who have the ingenuine, insincere spirit who don't wanna be helped, who on their own go their own way. There's a difference there. There are some who struggle with sin and say, I wanna humble myself and be helped in these areas. And there are others who struggle with sin and say, I'm going to fight this and go on my own and do things my own way rather than ever coming to confess the issue. And I don't wanna be involved in any of this accountability stuff. And, and I'm gonna make excuses every time this thing happens. And those people eventually, and Jesus, what Jesus did with those people is he just turned them over. You, you think about the rich young ruler. He exposed his sin and, 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 the, and the man went away sad. You never see Jesus ever pursue him or interact with him ever again. Say, okay, that's what you want, go ahead. We release you to go and to be exactly what you wanna be. That's judgment. But the one who's genuinely and sincerely struggling, Jesus would go all the way with that person. And in the same way, we will do the same. And this person here is not unruly. They're just genuinely struggling. And they might repent a hundred times, not giving an excuse for sin, but how many times are we supposed to forgive the person who is truly repentant? Seven times 70. I will forgive you forever. It depends on what your attitude is. And so this person, it may be the one who, who, it's maybe referring to the one who just can't experience true freedom in their lives. And maybe it's, it's, it's also referring to like the Jews who were still abiding by the customs of Judaism. They were weak in their conscience because their conscience had been fully formed by the word. And so the slightest hint of sin sets them headlong into sin. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 8. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That's the same word. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, it means your, your conscience has been formed by the word, eating in the night, temple because you know it doesn't matter. This is just food. My worship is to the Lord. So it doesn't matter here, right? You're not worshiping an idol. You're just eating the food that was prepared for idols. Uh, it doesn't mean anything to you. Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? In other words, there's ones who are weak in their conscience and any sign of sin, their, their mind hasn't been formed by the word, any sign of, of something that could throw them headlong into sin, I mean, they just latch onto it and, and forget it. They're in sin before you know it, right? You, you gotta help those people. There's the spiritually strong who understand what sin is and what isn't by the definition of the word. And so the point is here that Paul, the weakness Paul is referring to is Either way, susceptibility to sin. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 26, 41, you guys know this, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. And so what are the believers in the church to do with this brother or sister in this state? 
Well, the response is to help them. And, and literally what this means is take strong interest in them. Take strong interest in them. So what that means is you're to get involved in their lives. Remember, we gotta make this place healthy, right? That's what Paul's saying. So the unruly warn them, put the word of God on their minds, instruct them so it bears the weight on their minds. You gotta get them back in line. What about the faint-hearted? You gotta encourage them. Get them to be strong in the Lord and trust the Lord. We got some work to do for him. Don't they know who they are? All right, well, what about the weak? You gotta take strong interest in them. We gotta get them out of sin and we gotta get them consistently obeying God, right? That's the idea here. Intentionally establish relationships with them, right? This is all included in this word. Hold, literally hold firmly to them. Hold firmly to them. Don't let them go. Take strong interest in them. These ones who are truly repentant, they, they, truly honor, they, they truly want to follow the Lord. Hold on firmly. Take strong interest in them. Develop this relationship with them. Help them get there. Develop a close, close personal relationship with them. This can include instructing them in doctrine and, and with the word. Encourage them to turn away from their sin, to pursue righteousness, right? And... Uh, and if you think about helping the struggler, right? I mean, think about what I said. We'll go a long way with a struggler. If they humble themselves and willing to receive the, the word, Matthew 18 is the, the process of church discipline. You know when church discipline moves from step one to step two in the following? When someone doesn't agree with God about their sin. Matthew 18, if someone's in sin, go to that person. If they confess their sin, agree with God about their sin and repent, even if they do that a hundred times, you're done with church discipline. It's over. Because they've repented. That's all people, someone got to do is agree with God about their sin and genuinely try to repent, right? And so, and, and then that process ends. And so if someone's genuinely fighting over and over, confessing their sin, now that, I don't want that to be an excuse for anybody to continue on in sin because then that becomes a problem in itself. But someone who's genuinely, genuinely helping, you're not affirming them in their sin. You're not compromising the word of God. You're not being tolerant. You're helping them to be what God wants them to be by the instruction of the word and the power of the spirit. I heard uh, one of my classmates and, and someone who I look to a lot in, in what they're doing in ministry, Costi Hinn, and he addressed this recently where he talked about how the, the false misnomer that the church is the hospital for the sick. And that's, you got to know that that's just a half truth. That's not fully true. As if we're just supposed to be a whole bunch of people who are not okay. That's not true. It is for people to come in who are sick and then who are to be corrected by the word of God and then to thrive. The people of God are supposed to be the ones who are thriving spiritually and so don't continue to say this is a hospital for the sick as if what that means is we're just gonna continue to be what we wanna be in our flesh and don't wanna work. And we're gonna stay that way, right? It's not true. Or because people often say that when, when the churches, they hold the line on the truth. Well, don't you know it's a hospital for the sick? We're never gonna become what God wants us to be. You can't think that way. You do hold the line. We do hold the truth. We do have God's expectations on the lives of people. We don't compromise. That isn't legalism. It's to stay the way in which God, it's to, to become the way in which God wants us to be, to thrive. I mean, you think about Paul's letters, 
I mean, the church of Corinth was messed up, weren't they? And you know what Paul did in his letter? He, he told them to become what he, they're supposed to be. What about Jesus to the churches in Revelation? He, he's listed all the areas in which they, had, they were imperfect. And he says, you gotta get there or else you might true, prove to be an unbeliever, right? And so this is the idea, is that we need to help those who are not okay to become okay, helping them to be what God requires. And so the church will not be righteous, healthy, strong, effective, stable, lasting. You have no excuse not to grow out of your sin. You got the spirit of God and the word of God. Some might struggle more than others, but you gotta grow. And the members of the church are the ones who are responsible to help those sinning members get to where they need to be. You, if you're one, listen, if you're one who is struggling with sin like this, you know what the goal is for your life? To be holy, to be righteous, to be stable, to be serving, to be evangelizing, to be discipling, to be giving, to be obeying. That's the goal for your life. And other members, you gotta help them get there. So take interest in these members who have life-dominating issues who are persistent in sin and help them to experience freedom. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? Okay, number four then is the stagnant. And we're almost done here. Number four is the stagnant. And so he says, help the weak, and then what? Be patient with them. Who? What? All. What is he referring to here? Be patient with them. Who's them? All the people he just referred to. Why would he need to be patient? Because they're not growing. You're helping these people grow out of these issues, and they're not what? They're not growing. I mean, this, the implication here is for all these categories just mentioned, the strugglers, then who, those who are genuinely struggling, staying, wanting to grow, even in their hearts. But here's the deal. They're just, and they're hindering the growth of the church. They're hindering the, the health and the spiritual activity of the church. But the idea here is to be long-suffering, to be forbearing, to bear up under with even under provocation, being provoked without complaint, remaining tranquil while waiting, right? It's what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter four, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, meaning this. It's gonna take, sometimes it's gonna look like people are not growing. And you can say, I don't think they get it. It's just flying right over their head. Their eyes are like glazed over. You're trying to help them, right? And then you ask them questions and, and then they're kind of talking about something else. You're like, I don't know <laughs> if they even understand what I just said, right? And you're helping them get there. You gotta, you gotta be patient with them all. Here's the goal is, is we just gotta keep trying. And here's the, the implication is that people in the church that you're trying to help aren't initially growing through these issues. They're sincere, they're genuine, Right? They're not perfect, but they're real. That's the difference. Then you be patient with them. They're real. Remember Peter and Jesus, where he says to uh, feed my sheep after his big blunder of denying him? Peter had lost all of his confidence in the Lord. Jesus comes up to him and says, feed my sheep. They ask him if you love them. And Peter responds with this lesser love, this imperfect love. Jesus is asking, do you agape me? And Peter's saying, I phileo you. Right? And Jesus eventually comes down to his, his level and says, do you phileo me, really? 
Like even at that level, do you love me? And the point that Jesus was making is, is here, okay, I know your frame. I know you're not perfect. But the reason why, why Jesus was even pursuant of Peter in this way is because though Peter wasn't perfect, he was genuine, he was real. He was sincere about his love for God. He had fallen short. God was gonna restore him and, and use him in powerful ways. He had to get there, but he was sincere and genuine. The difference is when somebody's unwilling, insincere, and they won't repent, even have agreement with God about their sin, but the one who is continuing on and trying to follow the Lord, they might not look like they're growing for a very long time. You just gotta keep working at it. Keep being patient with them. This is your instruction, by the way, for the members of the, uh, for the, members of the church to work with the other members in the body, okay? I'm off the hook here, just kidding. This, of course, applies to us as well, the elders, but this is your instruction. And so they're stagnant. They're on the verge of even being exasperating. The spiritually mature, the spiritually strong, the body is to instruct, invest, counsel, disciple, come alongside, encourage, pray for, help, apply, even when they don't seem to get it. You gotta help them. They might fall back into the same patterns. They respond to the truth, but then they... They go back, they have a genuine attitude and they're genuinely trying, or at least they want to try. They're truly repentant. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, what does he say about love? Love is patient. It's long-suffering, right? And you're gonna relate a lot of this, those of you who are parents, or relate a lot to the, uh, of these to parents. The unruly child, you gotta correct them. You gotta warn them. The, the one who's faint-hearted, you gotta help them to have courage in the Lord or else they're not gonna make it in, in the world following Christ. The one who's weak in sin, you, you gotta give your whole life as to pursuing them to get out of sin, to walk faithfully with the Lord. And, and the one who is, is just over and over again doesn't seem like they're growing, you're trying so hard that the child doesn't seem to get it, what do you gotta do? You gotta be patient and you gotta keep working. You're not gonna give up on them. Right? You gotta keep working with them and God's gonna come through. And by the way, I will say this, that it's been our experience that if someone is willing to keep fighting and keep growing and keep looking to the word, they'll usually get there. They'll usually get there. The, the point is when somebody's unwilling, when, when they say, when they have a wishy-washy pursuit of God, they come here sometimes then they're not here. They're, they're in and out. They sometimes show up to discipleship, they sometimes don't. They sometimes have a really submissive heart and then they kind of go back to saying, I'm gonna be wise in my own eyes. And then they eventually on the verge of just, you know, being out altogether. But if someone's genuinely wanting to get there and you as a member of the church are helping them and, and they're sincere about it, they usually get there, right? And so you gotta keep being patient with them. Um, the fruit of the spirit, Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, What? patience. Psalm 103, the Lord is patient, full of mercy, being slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Exodus 34 says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Look at this, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions of sin. But now here's the other side of this, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This patience is for those who are sincerely following him and falling short. But for the guilty, the ones who are, 
who are going their own way. He says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There are serious consequences and God is gonna eventually give them up over to their ways. So this patience with people is, is not just an excuse uh, for people to sin and go their own ways. And so you're trying to help them. Keep teaching them the word. Keep helping them see their sin. Keep helping them take steps of obedience. Keep praying for their transformation, right? And uh, Jesus was righteously exasperated with his disciples. That's why even when I read in Ephesians chapter four, listen, we're almost done. Listen now. Ephesians chapter four, it says, be angry and do not what? Sin. Is there a category for righteous anger? Yes, there is. There is. And when you see things that are not aligned with God's word, you should be angry about them. Whether they be in a believer's life or an unbeliever's life, it's okay to be angry for what's right. God it shows us that. But it says don't sin in your anger. And don't, try not to let the sun go down on it. Meaning resolve it. Go address that person. But Matthew 16, five through 12, this is what Jesus says. And this shows this, his righteous exasperation with his disciples. An evil and adulterous generation seeks sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. He's talk, he was talking about the uh, Pharisees. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And as they began discussing it among themselves, they said, saying, we brought no bread, but Jesus, aware of what they said, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves or the 5,000 and how many baskets were ga you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They, then they understood that he did not tell them beware of the leaven of the bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In other words, Jesus was, was trying to teach these disciples not to, to, uh, to follow the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to have the same heart as them. And these guys are thinking about bread. They don't get it. And, and Jesus is righteously exasperated with the fact that they're not getting there yet but he keeps pursuing them. And so how about you? Are, you? are you being patient with the people in this church to help them grow? The last one we see here is the unloving, verse 15. And this is a pretty simple principle here. It says in verse 15, see that no one repays anyone, what? Evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone and to everyone, the one who does evil. Meaning this, listen, there are people in the body of Christ who will do evil to other people in the body. That's the context here. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. That implies that someone has done evil to you, right? So how are you to respond? And the evil here means harm, wrong. Literally, it means wickedness. They've done something wicked, like an unbeliever. They're acting like an unbeliever in the way that they've treated. And this is relational because it's not just done something wicked like they're doing some secret sin. This is they've done evil to you. 
So this is relational. So that's why I categorize this as unloving because it's wickedness, but it's relational. Got it? And so, and so this, is, this is not just private evil. This is evil that affects other people. And really, this might be the most difficult situation out of all. What do you do when a member sins against you? Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's slander. Maybe it's enticing you to sin. Maybe it's attacking you with their words. The response here again is in the imperative. How are we to respond? And by the way, all of these are. So these are all commands. Church, admonish the idol. That's a command in the imperative form. You have to do this to be obedient to the word of God. Warn those who are unruly, right? Encourage, this is an imperative form, a command, the faint-hearted, right? Help the weak. You are commanded to do that. This is imperative form. All of these are. Be patient with them all. And this is the same thing in the imperative. What is the command here? Well, it's pretty simple. It's just there's no retaliation allowed in the church. There's no retaliation. There's no revenge allowed in the church, period. There's never any revenge or retaliation allowed from God's people towards other people, even if they've done evil against you. Right? Proverbs 20, 22 says, do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. He will deliver you. Romans 12 says, repay no one evil for evil. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Never avenge yourself, it says. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Right? Matthew 5 says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. By the way, in the Old Testament, they gave that to limit the, 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 um, the punishment for people. If it's an eye, it's just an eye in terms of its punishment. A tooth, it's just a tooth. And what happened with the religious leaders? They just took that and made that an excuse to be able to retaliate in revenge, right? And, give, and, and pursue revenge. But Jesus says here, he, he, he knocks it out totally. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. If anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to him also the other, Right? And so he says, you, you've heard it said that you shall love your enemy or you love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, right? First Peter three, the whole book is about continuing to do good, having the mind of Christ, even, at the, even in the midst of suffering or being persecuted. And he says, he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. He says, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you're blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, honor Christ as Lord, uh, Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason that the hope, for the hope that is in you yet would do with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's better to suffer for doing what is good than if that should be God's will than for doing what is evil. And so we're to love our enemies. We're to, to always seek to do good. There's no revenge. And so listen now, again, I think this is very uh, exemplified in parenting. If your child does something evil against you, right? 
Well, there's going to be discipline. There's going to be corrective action. There's going to be the right steps to be taken in order to honor the Lord. But you're, you're still wanting their good. You still want them to get there and follow God and, and obey, right? And so you're still trying to help that person get there. Now, which is, so you're always seeking after that which is good, even for the people who do evil against you. You want them to get to where they need to be in the Lord. That, that's how the church is gonna become what it is. There's no retaliation and no revenge allowed in the church. There's no half-hearted effort in this either. He says this in verse 15, look, always seek to do good to one another. And the idea here is, is pursuing this, right? And so let me say this also in this, not only to the people in the church, but how is this gonna also apply to everyone outside the church? Right, because yeah, people in the church will do evil to one another, but what's definitely gonna happen? People from outside the church are gonna do evil to the believers. But what's your goal for even those who are outside the church who do evil and wicked things? You want them to come to know Christ. You want their good, right? So that's the application here. And so as we close this, listen, we could keep talking about all the different ways in which this applies, but here's what I'd say to you is these categories impede the growth of the church. They hinder the church from becoming everything that God wants it to be. And so it's the member's responsibility to, to take the initiative and to be active in helping those who are in this category, in these categories, get out of them. And so the question is, are you doing your job? Are you doing your job? In this area, are you doing your job? That's what Paul is requiring of you. Let's pray. Father, we come and we ask you by your grace to help this church to become everything that you call it to be, that you want it to be in the Lord. And the only way in which this is gonna happen is if you work in our hearts to be the members of the church that we're supposed to be. And so Lord, I pray for everyone here that they would follow your word in these particular areas. And Lord, that this church would grow because the members taking responsibility to help each other grow. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.